Right, well it's a great privilege to speak up here at front uh, on any occasion and I think an even greater privilege when it's the Resurrection Sunday. So I hope, I hope the Lord has used me, I hope uh, my notes have been well prepared and pray that the Lord will speak to us now through what I've got to say. I come from a Church of England background so you've got to forgive me, I've got to say it. He is risen. Hallelujah. <laughs> Just once. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do indeed thank you and praise you that you have taken our sins upon yourself, that you have dealt with them, Lord, that you've dealt with uh, sin, self and Satan, as we've heard so often, Lord. We do thank you and praise you for what you have accomplished. We thank you, Lord, for all those scriptures that we've heard throughout the songs this morning and throughout people uh, speaking uh, your word to us, Lord. And we pray that these scriptures will really be alive to us today as you are, Lord Jesus, as you are alive. May your word be alive to us today. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Okay, not surprisingly, the account of the resurrection of Jesus is recorded in all four Gospels. Having said that, the Gospel accounts do not agree. They're not easily reconciled to one another. And a simple example of this is that the Gospels of Matthew and Mark both refer to an angel being at the empty tomb, whereas both Luke and John refer to there being two angels present. (laughs) There are a number of differences like this, and many people have tried, but failed in some respect or other, to produce an agreed version of how the New Testament says it all happened. Now this should not, I don't think, unduly concern us, as we must remember that the Gospel writers were selective with their stories that they recorded, and they chose events and teachings of Jesus that they thought would be helpful to the readers that they were trying to reach. Another thing to to consider is that eyewitnesses often give different accounts of what they've seen, especially when things happen unexpectedly. And if you want an example of this, you can think of modern day times where there might be, say, a road traffic accident or a smash and grab robbery from a high street jewellers. If you think what would happen, the police would take as many witness statements as possible to arrive at a consensus or a best fit explanation of the sequence of events. And I can give you that on good authority because I used to know a police commissioner who told us exactly that sort of thing. Many, many statements that are all different in small respects. So, not surprising that we have the resurrection in all four Gospels, but slight differences. Now, coming back to the resurrection, the disciples, although they had been told by Jesus that he would rise again from the dead, and you can see that in Luke 18.33 as an example, they had no real expectation of that happening. They had not grasped the meaning of his words, and you'll see that later on as well. So having said that there are discrepancies, let's remember that the two main points agreed upon are in all four Gospels. And those two main main points are that the tomb was empty and that the risen Lord Jesus appeared to his disciples. And we're going to look at those two aspects particularly a bit later on. 
Now, before we go any further, let's turn to the Word and we'll have a look at the resurrection as recorded by John. And I'm going to read the whole chapter. This is John chapter 20, 1 to 31. Probably the most um, comprehensive account. Now, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran, ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and would go into the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb, weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day, at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were, well, sorry, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. 
Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, if you keep your fingers in the Bible there, we're going to be flipping about from uh, book to book, um, but coming back to John always. Um, now, I did have a thought, and I hope this goes down correctly. I'm going to break with all sort of tradition that I'm used to. Having read um, the Gospel and in the middle of the sermon, and the Gospel talks about peace being to you from the Lord, I thought it might be good to share the peace with each other. Do you think that's a good idea? So shall we um, greet each other with the peace of the Lord, and then we'll come back to the sermon afterwards. Okay? Let's share the peace. Well, that's warmed us up a bit, hasn't it? Right. Okay, now, as we read through this passage, you would no doubt have realised that there is no account of the actual rising again of Jesus, and all four Gospels are the same. The narrative tells only of the results of the rising, as demonstrated by the fact that Jesus' tomb was found empty, and through the appearances of the risen Jesus on different occasions. The empty tomb, if you think about it, by itself would prove nothing except Jesus' body was not there. But coupled with the fact that the risen Lord Jesus was seen by many different people on different occasions provides the evidence that Jesus was and is alive. So, the importance of the empty tomb. First of all, let's look at the extent to which the Jewish authorities went to make sure the tomb of Jesus was not interfered with. And keeping your fingers in John 20, if you can, turn to Matthew 27, and we'll look at verses 62 to 66. Matthew 27, verses 62 to 66. So the extent that they went to, Matthew 27, 62. On the next day which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. 
Pilate said to them, You have a guard, go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now if you turn a page or two in your Bibles, go to Matthew 28, verses 11 to 15, we'll see how the authorities reacted on hearing the news of the empty tomb. So they've tried to stop an interference with it. And now in Matthew 8, sorry, Matthew 28, 11, we read, Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened, that is, the empty tomb. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them, his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now we're just going to look at a few of the um, references to the tomb. Um, From our reading in John, we heard that Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. We could assume that Mary was acting on impulse because she couldn't have moved that stone by itself. It's a large stone. Um, But she wanted to prepare Jesus' body uh, properly for burial. And so she went by herself. Uh, When we read Matthew's Gospel in chapter 28 again, he tells us that Mary Magdalene was accompanied by the other Mary. But behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Now, again, going back to John 20, we see Peter and John witnessing the fact that the tomb was empty and then believing that Jesus had risen. Verse 9 For as yet they did not know the scripture, they didn't understand it. Jesus had told them that he was going to rise from the dead. Um, But it refers to scripture, that he might rise again from the dead. And this probably refers to Psalm 16 verse 10. Don't need to turn there, I'll read it out to you. It says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That's recognised as a messianic psalm. Now further to this, all four Gospels record that Jesus himself had foretold his resurrection. Um, Here's a couple of examples from John and Luke. As early as John 2.19, you remember this verse, Jesus said to the crowd after he had cleared the temple in Jerusalem of money changers and was asked for a sign of his authority. He said, destroy this temple, referring to his body, and in three days I will raise it up. Luke records Jesus commanding his disciples not to tell anyone about this in 9.22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Okay, so they didn't understand the Old Testament scriptures and they didn't understand what Jesus had told them. Now we go back to John again, looking at verses 11 to 18, and Mary Magdalene's experience of seeing two angels inside the tomb, where she expected to see the body of Jesus, and then meeting the risen Lord Jesus himself. 
Mary at first supposed Jesus to be the gardener. Now there's lots of reasons uh, people surmise why she didn't recognise him. Was she crying and couldn't see him clearly through her tears? Well, she, we, know, we know she was crying. Um, did he have a slightly different form? We don't know. Um, once she recognised her, Jesus then said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, and to my God and your God. So as I said, did he have a different form? Well, we know from later on that he, um, he ate fish, um, so he seemed to have a body as natural as anything. Um, Mary was possibly expressing a desire to hold on to Jesus for fear that she would lose him again. But Jesus' words regarding his ascension signify that his presence would only be temporary. If we look at some other appearances of Jesus and where they appear, um, where those um, are recorded rather, lots in the Gospels, but a short account in Luke in the prologue to the book of Acts. You might want to turn to this, Acts 1, 1 to 3. These are the um, currencies of those appearances that we're told about. Acts 1, 1 to 3. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given a commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So we have appearances spread over a period of 40 days. That's up to the time of his ascension. Now we've already had a few um, references to 1 Corinthians 15. Um, We're going to look look at a few verses there. But this this is a chapter that you really want to read. It's all about the resurrection life. But let's turn now to verses 3 to 8. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8. This is a summary of some of those appearances as described by Paul. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the Twelve. After that, he was seen by over over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. That is, they've died, obviously. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. Okay. Now we'll flick through a few other um, sightings that aren't included in the account of the Acts and the um, uh, Corinthians uh, reading. From John's Gospel earlier, we saw that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene and then the um, ten disciples with Thomas absent. Eight days later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples with Thomas present. Matthew tells us that Jesus appeared to some other women in chapter 28, 8 to 10. Luke recounts the meeting of Jesus with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. This is one of my favourite readings, actually. I don't know about yourselves the road to Emmaus, and records um, also later on uh, the presence at Jesus' ascension 
the disciples' presence at Jesus' ascension to heaven. Um, John records in chapter 21 that Jesus met seven of his disciples while they were fishing. Peter was one of those disciples. And this chapter also records um, Peter's reinstatement by Jesus after he had denied uh, Jesus at the time of his arrest. But Jesus appears to the, f- the seven fishermen and actually eats, has a breakfast with them. Now, those are the appearances in a nutshell. Let's look at the reaction or think about these appearances and see what the reaction of the disciples is in particular. They confirm the evidence for the resurrection, obviously, these appearances. And uh, you've probably heard this many, many times, but it's, it's probably the, the strongest um, evidence, the fact of the way the disciples changed in their attitude. We looked in, in the passage of John how disheartened and fearful they were uh, because they had the doors locked for fear of the Jews after his death. They met behind the locked doors for fear of the Jews. Then Jesus appears to them and he breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Then look how much Thomas changed, doubting Thomas when he saw the risen Jesus. What more could he say? My Lord and my God. Um, It's summed up, isn't it, in those words? My Lord and my God. Um, From Luke, I mentioned the road to Maus again. uh, The disciples were sad as they walked along, mourning, if you like, for Jesus. Uh, they suddenly become reinvigorated and alive when they meet the risen Lord. And he explains the scriptures to them concerning himself. That fabulous verse, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Luke 24, 32. And remember, they went back seven miles. They had travelled seven miles that day. They went back immediately to see the other disciples. Um, That's quite an effort, isn't it? So a complete change in their um, attitudes. Again in Luke, uh, just before his ascension, Jesus met with the disciples and he opened their understanding that they may comprehend the scriptures, it says. Jesus went on to say to them, you might like to look this up, uh, turn to Luke 24, verses 46 to 49, I'm going to read. Luke twenty four forty six. Then, then he said to them, "Thus it is. Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high." So he made it clear that the disciples would have the courage and the power to be witnesses for him and to preach the gospel to all nations. I might just add here a little bit about um, forgiveness of sins here. Uh, This is uh, John 20, 23, if you've still got your finger in there. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This doesn't mean that we have the power to forgive sins. It means we have the power to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. As, as a church, as a body, we can tell people that if they trust in the Lord Jesus, their sins will be forgiven. We haven't got the power to actually forgive the sins. So, in the space of six weeks, having seen the risen Jesus on several occasions, 
and received the promised Holy Spirit, the disheartened and disillusioned disciples are transformed into a strong group of courageous witnesses. And the evidence for the resurrection was real for them because it made their faith something they were willing to die for. Now I'm just going to um, finish off with a few points about the resurrection itself, just a selection of some of the, um, the things that I thought were useful to remember. Why was it necessary and what did it achieve? We've just looked at the empty tomb and the appearances and we realise, I hope, that that is a central part of the Christian faith, this resurrection and uh, the witnessing of it. And um, some of the, the uh, scriptures that talk about this or, or point to this importance uh, we're going to look at now. So first of all, it was foretold by the prophets. I referred to the scriptures, um, that they didn't understand the scriptures. And um, we're probably talking about Psalm 16 again. And um, Paul himself uh, quoted from that psalm and used it when speaking to the Jews in the synagogue in Antioch in Pisidia. That's in Acts 13. So he was saying that the resurrection was prophesied and here's the, um, the scripture to prove it, if you like. Uh, there's a further uh, short scripture in Isaiah verse, um, sorry, 26 verse 19. Uh, this is the Lord speaking to the Israelites. Your dead shall live together with my body. They shall arise. So there's a resurrection there. The resurrection was foretold by Jesus himself particularly Matthew 20, 18 and 19. I don't know if you want to turn to that. If you're quick to look up your Bibles, I've got it here, I'll read it to you. Matthew 20, 18 and 19. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day... He will rise again. Mark has at least two occasions recorded in 9.9 and 14.28. I won't look at them now. Different from that one from Matthew, where Jesus tells of his resurrection. And Luke and John also contain similar prophecies by Jesus about himself. Now, why was it necessary? We might be asking ourselves the question, why was the resurrection necessary? Was not the crucifixion sufficient? It was necessary, we're told, to fulfil scripture. We read earlier, I don't know how good your memory is, but we read Luke 24, 45 and 46 within that passage. Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. From the passage from 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19, we can see quite a few reasons why it was necessary. We're going to look at this passage in a minute. It gives efficacy or power, if you like, to preaching, to our faith. Uh, preaching, we can see in verse 14. I'll give you the passage again in a minute. Faith, 14 and 17, is mentioned. The truth of the gospel, verses 14 and 15. And not uh, last but not least, our hope in verse 19. Now let's just turn to that passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19. We're going to read. 1 Corinthians 15, 12-19. Diane has already quoted from this this morning. Paul was emphasising that it was absolutely sure, really, that Christ had risen from the dead. 
And if he hadn't, then we are to be most pitied. So let's go from 12, verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Well, that's almost a rhetorical um, statement, isn't it? Paul um, knows that Christ has risen. And um, so do we, hopefully. (laughs) Amen. Amen. So, um, read the whole of 1 Corinthians 15 at home in your own time. It's it's all about the resurrection life, as I said. Very good passage of scripture. Now, lastly, um, it was necessary for our justification. Paul effectively says in Romans 4.25 that the resurrection provided proof that God had accepted the sacrifice of his son. When we put our faith in Jesus, the price of our sins has been paid and we are justified in Christ's righteousness. And Romans 4, 24 and 25 read like this. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead and was delivered up because of our offences and was raised because of our justification. So he was crucified because of our sins. He was raised to justify us. He was proved to be the Son of God. Finally, the resurrection gives proof of Jesus being the Son of God. Um, Most clearly in Paul's greeting to the church at Rome. We've looked at Romans with Peter. And I don't know if you've sort of uh, cottoned on here, but let's look at Romans 1, 1 to 4. The proof of Jesus being the Son of God. According to Paul, of course. Romans 1, 1 to 4. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Now I'm going to um, conclude with another quote that we've heard already during the sermon, the, uh, the service, sorry. Jesus is recorded as saying in John 11:25, after Lazarus was raised from the dead. Or, no, sorry, I think this is before, wasn't it? I'm not sure. Anyway, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And the life, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And we say with Paul, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.